prayer comes from uh, a few hundred years ago. A man named Martin Bootser said this. Let it be our prayer tonight. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 11. The title of this sermon is Remember Then and Now. I'll read our text, pray one more time for us, and we'll walk through this together. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, Therefore, remember that you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you at that time, you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would help us to fully understand the words before us. We ask that we would know the depths and the heights the depths of our own depravity and lostness and the heights of your love and mercy and redemption for sinners like us, that we would know uh, that we have redemption through your blood according to the riches of your grace. And Lord, help, help, us, um, help us especially to grasp the wonder it is that you would save people like us. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to see Christ in all that he has done, and the love of the Father, and the grace in the Son, and the fellowship your Holy Spirit brings us into. Pray all that in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Well, tonight we come to the first imperative or command of Ephesians. And I want to ask how that fact, how hearing that lands on you. That we're coming to a command from God. What comes to your mind is you hear that we're going to hear an imperative, a you must do this from the word of God. What might it reveal about how you think about God? Does it cause you to toss all of the great truth that we've been studying in the book of Ephesians? This is what Christ has done. This is who he is. Does it cause you to say, 
okay, I guess we're done with that stuff, and now we need to get to the doing. Are you tempted when you hear, we're going to talk about the commands that God has for his people to forget about Christ and now say, okay, what do I need to do? What, the focus is on me, what should I do? Well, let me remind you, before we get into God's first command for his people, let me remind you of where we've been. Paul has relayed so many wonderful truths in chapter 1 through verse through chapter 2, verse 10 so far. He's talked about all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. He's talked about what God has done in rescuing us only by grace through faith in Christ. And all these things, they've been truths that are in uh, their indicative statements, which simply means things that are true. An indicative is a thing that is true. An imperative is a thing you need to do. Now we come to an imperative. He hasn't yet spoken of the commands that we must do. And as we've been studying this epistle, there have been so far some implications from the truth, some applications from the truth of hearing what Christ has done. We've realized there's some things we should do, right? We've realized as we've seen what Christ has done, oh, I need to repent of some sin in my life, that we need to renounce all hopes outside of Christ. We realize we need to respond to the gospel proclamation. That it's good news that demands a response from those who hear it. But I hope that to this point, Ephesians has really been like a balm for your soul. Something that is rubbed in the deep cracks of your soul that is healing. Because it's what God has done for his people. As we've been able to live in the indicative truths of what it means to be in Christ and seeing over and over again what he's done, I hope it's been healing. And before we get to the exact command that we see in Scripture, I want to remind you of something that's been honestly revolutionary for me realizing. And it's that this letter was written to Christians. This letter was written to those who were already Christians. And we can't can't rush past that fact. I remember it dawning on me that Paul didn't include a footnote in his introduction that said, tell non-Christians to read the first three chapters of Ephesians that talk about all the indicatives and all the truths of what Christ has done, but if you're a Christian, turn to, turn to chapter 2, verse 11, read that, and then skip to chapter 4 and start doing, doing better. Start doing some things. No, you, you need all of the book of Ephesians. You need chapter 1 through 3, and we need chapters 4 through 6. We need the truths of what Christ has done, and we need to hear in light of what Christ has done, what must we now do? And those two things married together will absolutely transform a person. What we're really saying is you need the gospel not only for your justification to be right with God, but you need it for your sanctification. That you need the gospel for your salvation and for your maturation. That you need the gospel and the gospel is truly for all of life. And when I say that, 
is not meant to just be a catchphrase. We need Christ and his person and his work, and we have no hope outside of him. And we come now to the crucial truth that once again, in a profound way, Paul gives to us. And he gives to us the first and only command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. That's pretty astounding. Only one thing he says to do. And what he says to do is remember. Remember. Remember what God has done. Remember who you were. Remember life back then and remember life now. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to just walk through this, these verses under three headings. First, we're just going to, we're going to look at that one simple word, remember. And then we're going to look at how Paul, what Paul says to remember. Remember life then, and lastly, remember life now. So the first, first heading is the first command in Ephesians, remember. Verse 11, therefore, in light of verses Chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, all that God has done, that you all, and myself included, we were sinners, alienated, hostile in mind. We did evil deeds and all of these things, and we were deserving of wrath. But God, in Christ, made us alive together with him. By grace, he has saved us in light of all that. And he's made us his new creation, and we're his workmanship, and we're created anew for good works in Christ Jesus in light of that, therefore, remember, remember that formerly you, and now he's going to clarify, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that at that time you were without Christ. So we'll get into all the details of life before Christ, life back then. But the first thing Paul says the Christians must do is they must remember. And this is so significant because the first thing we do as Christians is we remember what God has done. And this isn't unique to the book of Ephesians, really. It's, it's, a story, it's the story of the whole entire Bible. So much of the Christian life is about remembering. We are to meditate upon the truths of God. We're to have what God has said and what God has done going through our minds and remembering the things he has spoken, remembering the great acts of salvation he has done. I wonder what, what we remind ourselves of throughout the day. Uh, what comes to mind? What, what do you remember? Is it, is it sins? of your past. The psalmist has a whole category of that. He calls it the sins of my youth. He, he constantly asks God, God, don't remember the sins of my youth. Think things, decisions you made that you deeply regret from your past. Sometimes we, we remember bitterness. We're, we're working and then we just remember what somebody said to us or, or how somebody treated us and it just hurts, but it, it feels Sometimes good to just let it lodge in our hearts. 
and we just think over and we remember the reasons we're bitter. We remember the reasons we feel like we don't measure up. We remember our own past. We, we remember, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And so we worry about what will happen in the future. We, we remember, I feel like I'm not right with that person. How can I try to make things right with them? What can I possibly do? Remembering isn't something that's foreign to any of us, regardless of how good or bad our memory is. Regardless if you leave your keys everywhere, you do actually know how to remember. You think upon something. But Scripture, Scripture provides a whole multitude of ways that we can remember, that we can fulfill these kinds of commands that God has for us. Some different ways Scripture provides for us is to, uh, is to uh, remember or some of the following. First, we, we can daily worship God. How? Through scripture reading, through prayer. We look at the life of the psalmist, and in the psalms, we really have something of a roadmap for the spiritual life. This is how you pray. This is how you think through things. This is how you feel. This is what you do with feelings. You don't know what to do with them. And the psalmist, the psalmist at one point says, uh, I praise God who daily bears up my burdens. And revealed in that is something about the psalmist's life. If God daily bears up his burdens, it means the psalmist is cognizant. He knows in somehow, in some way, he's coming to God daily. How can we do that today? Well, we are so incredibly blessed, all of us, to have access to God's word. Each of us has a copy of the word of God in our own language, in a plethora of translations. We can daily Come to God's word and remember what he said. For those of us who live with others, either in an apartment or with our family, we can, we can do family worship to remember with one another. What might that look like? It's really simple. It means reading part of scripture together or a Bible story, praying together, and singing together. We remember through corporate worship. What, what is gathering on the Lord's day if not one long act of remembering? Within there are all so many different acts of remembering. We, we weekly get to take communion with one another. And what did the Lord Jesus say about communion? He said, do this in what? In remembrance of me. He said, I, when you do this, I want you to remember what I have done. We do this when we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When you hear the person next to you singing those things and, and you're struggling to believe some of them, but you see your brothers and sisters, it strengthens your faith and you say, oh yeah, I remember. This is true. These are the truths of God. We remember, we can remember through memorizing scripture. I love in the Ten Commandments, the commandment number four, keeping the Sabbath, what, what does God say? He says this, he says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, we've done so many funky things in history with that commandment throughout history, but just, just take it at its bare giving from God. God said this, I want you to remember to rest in me once a week. 
What a beautiful gift of God. And so Paul says to the Ephesians, in light of everything God's done, this first, this first command I have for you is this, remember. And what I want us to see is in all of these, what are we primarily doing? Because I just gave you a list of, man, if you, if you took that list, you might be feeling so burdened. I need to memorize Psalm 119. I need to start worshiping with my family. I need, to, I need to remember more than I remember now, and I need to do all these things. But what are we primarily doing in all of our remembering? Well, in all of our doing, we are remembering what Christ has done. So Paul looks at his people, and he says, he commands them, remember, don't forget, but remember. Specifically, heading number two, he says, remember then. Remember who you were. Verse 11 and 12, therefore, remember that formerly you, and he clarifies you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember who you were then. I'll never forget uh, in youth group when Hanaro actually preached this message as we were going through the book of Ephesians to the youth. And his, his introduction, there's, there's times where you just hear a sermon and you, and you realize, I won't ever be able to unhear that sermon. In the best way, I mean that in the best way. <laughs> uh, he, he told, and I thought, of, I thought of just outright stealing this from him. He said I could use it, but I realized if I stole it, you would, I would quickly expose uh, my, myself as a plagiarist, as you'll see. Uh, but he talked about when he was growing up, playing soccer with his friends. Right away, you'd be like, that's not your own story. But he would play soccer with his friends, um, and they would, they would dream about making it big. They would dream about going pro. They, after, after the game, in the locker room or whatever it was, they would talk about where they were going one day, but then they would say to one another, hey, when you make it big, remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. They would say that to one another constantly. Remember where you came from. And the Apostle Paul, right here, turns to the Ephesians and he says this, remember where you came from. The Ten Commandments begin for the people of Israel with basically a call to remember. It says, you were at that time slaves in the land of Egypt. Remember, I rescued you out of that land. It begins uh, with a word of remembrance, but something we need to make note of is few, if any of us in this room, are Jews. I, I would venture to imagine probably none of us are ethnically Jewish. There's not a true Israelite through blood in this room. And we so often think of ourselves in the year 2022, uh, going to church as, as God's chosen people. And, and in one sense, we're right, but in another sense, we've kind of forgotten the story. We can, we can honestly become arrogant 
thinking of ourselves. We can think we're church people, we're good people, we have good heritage, we have Christian heritage, and we're from a Christian nation that was founded on Judeo-Christian values, right? But what Paul is saying right here that we forget removed by 2,000 years of history is something that was pretty radical at the time because there was a ton of hostility and a huge divide between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says to his mostly Gentile church, hey, remember where you came from. We explored the deadly situation that everyone is born into in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where, where we are dead in our transgressions and sins, that we're, we formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the, according to the devil, the, the prince of the power of the air, that we all conducted ourselves in the passions of our own flesh, and that we were by nature children of wrath. We, and we said, and that's true of everyone. But here Paul speaks specifically to Gentiles. And he says, I want you to remember something even more. Your situation was actually even more fraught than the Jews was in many ways. So Paul says, I want you to remember seven things. We'll just walk through them quickly. First, he says, remember this. You were socially alienated. You were a social outcast. Where do we get that? We get that, that you, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. The Gentiles were called, we, all of us, a Gentile is just a person who is not Jewish. We were called by the Jews the uncircumcision. Now, just in case you're wondering, that's an insult. That's not meant to be a term of endearment. David, when he's about to fight Goliath, what does he say? He says, I'll go take on that uncircumcised Philistine. He says, I'll go and do that. He referred, they would refer to people by a term that had to do with a procedure to a male's private part. That's not really a great way to be referred to. It's, 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 we all know it. It's classic middle school uh, humor still today, but that's what they would do. They were social outcasts. We don't, we don't associate with you. You are the uncircumcision. Now, you'll notice even in verse 11, really what's going to be in next week's sermon, he's going to point out, you're, you were called out by the so-called circumcision that's performed only, that's performing the flesh by human hands. He's going to say they, they weren't necessarily the truly circumcised. Because God always was talking about a circumcision that went all the way to the heart. That actually gave a new heart. But that's for next week. First, you were socially alienated. Secondly, you were actually uncircumcised in the flesh. There was a sign given to God's covenant people where the men would be, the male babies would be circumcised. And we Gentiles, we didn't historically have that mark of being in the people of God. Thirdly, you were at that time without Christ. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time without Christ. We're so slow to remember that Isaiah, the passage, the passage that says, for to us a child will be born, was written by a Jewish prophet named Isaiah. 
Originally, people weren't really thinking. It's not like the Greeks were off claiming that passage for themselves. For to us, a child will be born. For uh, that he would be born in Bethlehem was a Jewish town. That he would be in the line of King David. The Medes weren't like boasting over that. King, King David? Who cares about that? He was a Jewish Messiah. We Gentiles, we were at that time without Christ. We didn't have citizenship in Israel. Let's put it this way. If Israel was going to fight against someone in the Old Testament, they'd be fighting probably like one of our ancestors if they got far enough in the globe. Think about that. Our forefathers and our foremothers were the enemies of the people of God. Fifth, we were strangers to the covenant of promise. We had no knowledge of God's great and very precious promises. God said he was even going to bless not only Israel, but all nations. But we were strangers to those promises. Romans 9 talks about how Israel is the one to whom was promised all these great uh, promises of salvation and the covenants and the heritage of God. Now, this isn't saying that Jews are just somehow saved. Every Jew who ever will be saved is going to be saved through faith in Christ. But what he's highlighting is you didn't know about those covenants. You didn't know about the promises of God. You were summarily, number six, you were without hope. You had no hope. I I personally... um, Ethnically, I'm made up of, I'm like Heinz 57. I'm, I'm a mutt. The most I am of anything, I'm like a quarter Greek, right? My, what did my ancestors, ancestors contribute? What was our great hope? Well, what, what does the Bible say? They said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That, that was the philosophy of my people, right? I'm also, uh, have a little bit of Norwegian in me. So maybe if we're great warriors, We'll go to Valhalla. We'll kill enough people and be great enough warriors and go to a great afterlife. We had no hope, our ancestors in this world. Number seven, Paul sums it up by saying this, you were without God in this world. Considered together, the first six of these remembrances, they come directly from the fact that Gentiles did not have the word of God. They didn't have the word of God. They didn't have his revelation to them. Our people are people not of the Bible historically, but people of the Odyssey and Thor and Mayan and Aztec sun gods and Ra and superstition and witchcraft and Zeus and idolatry. I also, at this point, I can't help but think of the one 1,680 languages there are in this world that are spoken, of which the people who speak them do not have at least some scripture in their language. That stat comes from Wycliffe Bible Translators. I can't think at this time, having to have meditated on these truths of those people without the word of God, and, and one of my prayers and something I just want to ask 
as we're learning about this and remembering where we came from, ask you to be praying for is that God would raise up from our church at least one person to go and be a Bible translator, that they would have the word of God in their language. There was a time when our people, the people of our ancestry, had no hope because they had no Bible. And it's in the word of God that the gospel comes to us. Romans chapter 10. How will they believe unless someone tells them? Michael Allen, one commentator, considers the sevenfold delivery that Paul has of these, uh, of these downer statements about what it was like to be a Gentile. And in considering the sevenfold delivery of hopelessness, he's reminded of the seven, seven days of creation. And he remarks that there's a certain rhythm to creation where God speaks and it was, and it was good. And over and over again, until you come to the sixth day, and it was very good. And then you come to the seventh day, and what's God going to do now? He's going to sit back and rest. Seeing everything he had done, it was good. But the story for us Gentiles, left to our own devices, is that we were alienated, and we were cut off, and we were without Christ, We were outside the kingdom of Israel, and we were strangers to God's promises, and we were day six, so to speak. We were with no hope. It's not that things were very good. It's that we had no hope, and the seventh declaration, far from being one of rest, is that we were without God in this world. It's a story of decreation, of deconstruction. Think of the writer John when he said, though the world was created through him, the world did not recognize him. There's a good and right theme in the Bible of being brought low by the truth so that we can be brought high by the truth. Michael Allen said this, the language of deconstruction, those those seven things that we were talking about, what it meant to be a Gentile, accents the way in which the gospel is no salve or band-aid, but has to bring the promise of God's word to the totality of our sin-riddled existence. Indeed, the word has to kill before it makes alive, to mortify prior to vivifying. That is the way of God's word. It exposes what is true. It kills before it makes alive. But the reason God shows us the depths of these things is so that we can see the heights of his grace and the riches of his redemption. All of the dire need really can be found in the words, without Christ. They can all be summed up in the fact that we Gentiles were without Christ in the world and summed up in the conclusion that without, we were without God. And make no mistake about that. Those who are without Christ are without God in this world. If you don't have Christ, the real Christ, you are without God. There's no person who has a neutral or no relationship with Christ but is on good terms with God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
And it must be the real Christ, the true Christ, not, not the Mormon Christ, not the Christ of our imagination, of who, who we think Jesus really is like, that there's some little reflections of him in Scripture. No, the real Christ revealed in his holy word. Paul says, remember where you came from, but don't stop there. Third heading, remember now. Remember who you are. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That was then, Paul says, but this is now. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus. What are those four words, if not a call to remember what God has done? Remember what Paul has already said, what it means to be in Christ Jesus. That we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That we, as Christians, have been chosen in him. That we're holy and blameless before God in him. That in love, he predestined us. That he bestowed grace upon us in him. That in him, we have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace. He says, that's who you were, foreign, outside, cast off to the people of God. But now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near to him. God has brought you near in Christ Jesus. I want us to see it's not as though there was no hope and then poof, magically. Now people are in in Christ. Now we have hope just because Christ appeared. People appeared in him. No, what Paul is saying is somehow people have gone into Christ, and we know how that is. It's by grace, through faith in Christ. They are now united to him, never separated from him, and it is being in Christ that is synonymous to have been brought near to God. If you are a Christian, it means that God doesn't stand far off from you. He has brought you near to himself. As we're going to see in verse 18 later, through him, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. We can come near the Father in Christ through the Spirit because Christ has brought us near to him. Once you were far off from him, but now you have been brought near. I love the way that Paul teaches us to think about ourselves in his writings. He doesn't say, you were this, boom, 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 but now you are, boom, 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 boom. What does he do? He says, this was your condition before, and here's, here's where you were, and it was really due to who you were. But now, he doesn't say, but you know what? You got a lot of potential going for you. Like, I, I think you can turn things around. I, I like these things about you. No, he, he, he loves people. He knows every single person's created in the image of God. But he knows real hope 
Real hope for sinners comes not from looking at themselves, but looking at Christ. What does he do in verse 13? He says, but now in Christ Jesus. He says, that's who you were, but in Christ Jesus. You who were formerly far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brother or sister in Christ, if you're wondering who you are, if you struggle, if you struggle with your place in this world, like you feel like, I feel like my life is going nowhere and I don't know the first thing to do or say. If you feel lonely or lost, don't begin with yourself. The truth about you is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and likely, like we've just said, verses 11 and 12 as Gentiles. But true answers to the questions, who am I? They come ultimately only as we see Christ. What Augustine said so many years ago is true. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. They don't find rest in learning more about ourselves, in focusing on ourselves. Not, it's not about getting enough money that you'll feel secure. It's not about being a good enough mom or a dad or husband or wife. It's not about having some person love you. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. Look at the person of Christ in Christ Jesus. Look at the work of Christ. He's brought you near by his blood. How is it Christ brings us near? It is only by the blood of Christ. Those last words, verse 13, brought near by the blood of Christ. What we need to know is not just something abstract about Jesus, but we need to know that it is through the shedding of his blood that we are brought near to Christ. You and your friends need to know about the propitiation that Christ supplied for sinners. And you need to know the truth behind that big word, propitiation. That Christ on the cross didn't just offer his life as an example, but that he suffered the wrath of God that you deserved. That he shed his blood so that you wouldn't have to shed your blood that he took the penalty we deserved in our place. Jesus, through his death and the shedding of his blood, he bore the wrath of God in his body that was reserved for us, that was due to us because of our sins. You know, the dominant note of the religious teachers I had in college said Jesus didn't have to take, and he didn't take the wrath of God on the cross. I, I have friends who say, don't, don't talk about so much sin. Don't, don't talk about Jesus needing to take wrath. But we need to know this, that apart from Christ shedding his blood, taking the wrath of God, we have no peace with God. The only hope we have for peace is in him. And we only have peace because he took the wrath. We have redemption because he shed his blood. Why did Jesus shed his blood? 
What is, why does Paul keep going on and on about Jesus' blood? It's because we only have redemption through his blood. We have been brought near through his blood. Christ showed his love for us in that while we were still his enemies, he died for us. The wages of sin are death, and we deserved to die. If, if your friends out there are just thinking that Jesus just showed a loving example, which, have we ever seen love like that? We have never seen greater love than that, but that's not enough for your friends to know, for your family to know. They need to know that Christ died to take the wrath of God that sinners deserve, that all who would trust in him would be absolved, would be forgiven, would be cleansed of their sins, and that God is both just and the justifier of those who believe in him. That he doesn't wink at sin, but the Son of God and his humanity on that cross took what was coming for those who would believe in him. So we remember, Christian, the first command in the book of Ephesians is remember. Remember who you were. Remember what he's done. Remember where you came from. Remember your life without Christ but remember the hope you now have in him. That you who were once far off from God have been brought near by his blood. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you would forgive sinners like us. That you would bring near to yourself. Not, not just Abraham and his his bloodline descendants, but all who would ever put their faith in you would be called sons of Abraham. We praise you for that truth. And God, I, I ask that you would, you would both humble us with the truth of where we were, but that you would raise us up and lift us up in seeing that Christ, you came to save sinners like us and that you accomplished that salvation, that you also raise us up with you. So we'll look at the next weeks of the unity that you've declared and you have purchased. I ask that you would unify our own church. But for today, God, we ask that we would remember the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And for those of, our, those of us who have loved ones and friends and family who do not yet know this, we ask and we pray for their salvation too, God. Would you use us to tell them about what we've been reminded of tonight? Pray us all in Christ's name. Amen.